right, good evening. We are on lesson 120 tonight. Brother Eddie's passing out the, the curriculum. Uh, he kind of mentioned before me that this is a little bit of a thicker packet tonight. Uh, but uh, we are uh, continuing our study of uh, Jesus at the cross. Uh, we completed really the, the, the second half of our lesson last week. Uh, if you recall, we, two weeks ago we looked at the first three hours of Jesus on the cross. Last week we looked at the, the last three hours of the cross. And today we're going to sort of stay right there uh, at Jesus at the cross before we move forward. But we're going to kind of look at some of the uh, miraculous events that uh, happened right then and there that we didn't take too much time uh, the, the other week to, to discuss. But again, we just want uh, to point out that uh, the, those first three hours were uh, from 9 a.m. to about noon. And this was a lot of activity was going on at that time. It was, it was light out. Uh, but then last week, we noticed from about noon to 3 p.m., uh, right before Jesus died upon the cross, that there was darkness upon the land. And again, uh, we, we, t we spent some time talking about, you know, uh, sort of um, the apologetics side of that, uh, where a lot of people, skeptics, will say, well, uh, you know, maybe it was an eclipse, or maybe it was just really cloudy out uh, that day. But, you know, we, we pointed out that, uh, you know, this was at the Passover, and the, the moon and the sun were on opposite sides of uh, the earth, and so there's no way that could have been an eclipse uh, for, that lasted for three hours. And so we, we talked about that. We'll touch on that again this evening, and we'll even, you know, touch on all of those miraculous events that happened there at the cross. Uh, we looked at the last four uh, sayings of Jesus upon the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, we're told that, that he says that right at the ninth hour. Um, we talked about how that was uh, really a quotation from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a very messianic psalm. The, the Jews would have, uh, when, when they have, would have heard Jesus say that, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Their minds would have went right to Psalm 22 and uh, understood that, hey, the, the, Jesus is talking about, uh, you know, that psalm being fulfilled through him. Right? That's, that's the same psalm that talked about being pierced in his hands and his feet, about his jaw being clenched to the side of you know, his mouth you know, because he was thirsty. And again, that, that was the other thing that he said. Uh, he, he says, I am thirsty. He says, it is finished. And then finally, Luke records for us his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So, again, we're going to stay right here at the, at the cross but we're going to talk about some of those uh, miraculous events that happened there. Uh, the curriculum kind of gets us into this uh, lesson by uh, asking a question uh, this evening. Um, has anyone ever been to Mount Everest? Or is anyone you know, fascinated with uh, mountains or mountain ranges? Anything of that sort? I'm the wrong guy to talk to. Uh, I've only been out of the United States for uh, like a period of three hours in my life uh, when I was a young boy going to Canada. Uh, so I have not been over into the, the Himalayan region. It looks like I guess no one else are world travelers either. But when you think of uh, Mount Everest, what do you think of? The biggest, baddest mountain. Yeah, the biggest, baddest mountain around, right? And so, um, 
Can you name any of the other mountains that are uh, associated with that Himalayan you know, mountain range? We can't, can we? The Mount Everest really is the only one that we can think of. Uh, I think it's the, the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, something like that, uh, tallest mountains in the world are right in that vicinity, right part of that same range. But we don't remember those other ones, do we? We just remember Mount Everest because of the vast size of it. Uh, it, you know, it dwarfs those other ones in comparison. And uh, you know, those, those other ones are virtually unknown. And so to uh, parallel that with the cross, when we think of the cross of Jesus, you know, what, what do we think of? What's the first thing that comes to our mind? His death on the cross, right? That's what comes to our mind. And we often forget about some of those events that happen while he's on the cross. And again, we'll look at these here this evening. The, the, the sun darkening. We already talked about that last week. But the earthquake that happens. The, the veil tearing in half. The, the graves being opened and, and those uh, saints being resurrected. And so we're going to look at those. And um, the point is that the, the curriculum was talking about was that you know, those miracles are often referred to by some scholars as the foothills of Calvary, right? Because uh, we forget about those things in comparison to Jesus uh, on the cross. Um, and so, you know, the, the purpose of this lesson is to help us, again, appreciate even more what Jesus did for us. Before we jump into the text, uh, remind ourselves that I just wanted to read Hebrews uh, chapter 12 this evening as we begin this lesson. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I don't know if you've ever caught this verse, if you've ever thought about this verse before, but it, uh, it, it stood out to me before. Um, well, let me start in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so e easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You ever notice that verse? It says that Jesus, uh, he, uh, for, the, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What does that even mean? What's joyful about the cross, about that experience? Yeah, that's what it ends up being, right? The, the, the reconciliation of man to God through uh, the death of Jesus upon the cross. But, you know, I, as I've often read that verse, you know, just thinking about uh, the, joy set, or the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that just, uh, it's always been perplexing, right, to think about uh, that that was a joyful thing in a sense to him. So, yeah. So, 
trying to think, it's kind of akin to that in a sense. Or like a high school student who's, you know, going to a, uh, uh, you know, entering some kind of program or professional program uh, after a couple years of college. And once that's accomplished, it, it, there's great joy in that sense of accomplishment. Uh, and, and when I read that, that's, I mean, and, and, and those things are in no way comparable to sure. what he accomplished. But, uh, but what I'm saying is it's, I'm trying to make an analogy that, you know, that helps me understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think that, that verse, uh, you know, uh, we don't think of the cross that way, do we? No. And, uh, and so I thought that was, a, you know, a good way to start the class as we, you know, continue to, you know, be there right at the cross with Jesus that it was something that he looked to with, with joy, right, and accomplished what he had set out. And so let's, uh, let's talk about those events that happened around the cross. Uh, the, again, the curriculum sort of uses some... Uh, alliteration for us here this evening and so again the first one we're going to talk about is the darkness which again we talked about this sort of at length last week so we won't spend too much time but it refers to it as a divine portent now that's a word i had to look up i, I don't i've never used that word before i don't think i've ever seen that word before but portent p-o-r-t-e-n-t uh, just simply means sort of like a sign and so uh, this darkness a divine portent and Again, recall 9 a.m. to 12 uh, when it's light out and Jesus is upon the cross. There's a lot of things going on. We studied that first, uh, those first three hours. He's praying for his enemies. He's taking care of his mother. Uh, he's having that conversation with the thief, you know, and obviously saving this thief. Uh, his enemies are casting lots for his clothing. Uh, they're casting insults his way. The women are weeping. The apostles lead Christ's mother away. And so again, the point is, is there's a lot of things going on that first three hours uh, that's recorded for us. But when we get to those final three hours, there's not too much, uh, as, as much recorded as we studied last week. And so we talked about this darkness that engulfed the land. Again, we don't know the extent of it. Was it something that just gradually uh, came through or was it like a light switch turned on and off? Um, we, we talked a little bit about, I brought this up last week, but you recall the, uh, the plague, the ninth plague uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, listen to this, Exodus chapter 10, uh, verse 20, starting in verse 21. It says, uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, and there would be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days, and they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. So again, was this the, the same type of darkness? Uh, we're not sure. Uh, we don't know, but it was just interesting reading that uh, description of the, the type of darkness that happened during the, the ninth plague. Right? It was thick. It was heavy. They couldn't see uh, one another. And so again, is that what happened here while Jesus was on the cross? Um, again, we don't know. Uh, we asked the question, you know, did, it, did that darkness simply cover uh, Judea? Did it cover all of Israel? Did it cover the whole world? Um, now one thing that uh, was of sort of interest was that there, uh, we believe that there are some ancient Roman historians uh, that 
uh, actually wrote about this that kind of confirms this for us, that uh, there was a day in which right around noon that the skies went dark for three hours. And uh, again, uh, it talks about that in the packet, uh, a couple of different men who wrote about it. But um, what do we know about this darkness? Again, we know that it was not a natural event, right? It wasn't, it wasn't clouds, it wasn't a sandstorm. Uh, we know it wasn't a solar eclipse. I didn't bring this up last week, but when, when is the brightest time of day uh, normally for the sun to come out? Noon. When does, again, when does this darkness prevail on the land? I mean, doesn't that just, uh, you know, give you goosebumps, right, that... Um, the, normally, the, the brightest time of day, you know, from noon maybe to three, this is the exact same time that, you know, the, the land is darkened. Right? It's, this wasn't something that happened in the morning or evening when the sun was going down, but this was during the brightest time of the day that, again, there was this total darkness. But again, there's not a lot of activity recorded for us. It's sort of eerily quiet uh, during these three hours. And, you know, what does this darkness mean? What does it symbolize? Um, you know, we, we kind of touched on this last week. I'll just kind of go over, again, what we talked about. Uh, but, just, again, just thinking of, you know, just like that first Passover uh, back in Exodus, uh, you know, you had, the, you had that ninth plague of darkness right before uh, that, that Passover happens. And, well, the same thing has happened here for the, for the last Passover, Right? There's this darkness upon the land, and Jesus is going to fulfill the old law. He's going to nail it to the cross through his death. And so there's that symbolism there, isn't there, uh, of this darkness upon the land for the first Passover, the last Passover. Um, this could be a sign of mourning. Right? This could be uh, you, this darkness could have been God veiling the shame that, uh, of Jesus upon the cross. You know, one of the obvious reasons is, you know, what was, what was the purpose of a miracle that, you know, that Jesus or any of the apostles performed? It was a sign to unbelievers, wasn't it? So, you know, again, maybe this was the reason why this darkness came upon the land. But in, in either case, uh, one of the greatest mysteries of the ages, how one man could die for the sins of, of billions... And at that time, you know, again, Jesus' greatest suffering was a time of, of silence. It was, you know, in the dark. And again, we're almost silent about it because we just can't comprehend uh, everything that went with it. Let's talk about that second thing, the, the, the earthquake. Right? So uh, this is divine power. Um, it was near the end of the three hours. Right, so the, the darkness happens at around noon. The, these next three events, these next three miraculous events are going to happen right, at, uh, right around 3 p.m., right after Jesus gives up, yields up his spirit. Uh, Matthew t- chapter 27, uh, starting in verse 51. I don't remember if I had you turn here, but this is where we're going to spend most of our time this evening. Matthew 27, uh, starting in verse 51. So it says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, 
and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. So put yourself in that place, right? Um, you know, what are the odds that there's this total darkness upon the land and now this earthquake happens? I mean, what are you thinking at that point? Okay. Uh, something's got your attention, doesn't it? Um, something's going on here, right? It's uh, completely dark out when it should be light. Uh, an earthquake happens. Earthquakes don't necessarily happen every day, do they? At least in this location. And so uh, we don't know how, you know how this would have ranked on, the, on a Richter scale or anything like that. But it must have been pretty powerful, wasn't it? Because what did it do? Okay, it opened up the tombs. Split rocks. I mean, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't mention, you know, maybe some structures or homes uh, being destroyed, but it says it split, split rocks. I mean, that's one of the toughest materials, right, on earth. It's split open. The, the, the tombs that were made, uh, carved in rocks, uh, bro broken open, split open. And so, uh, again, what does that mean? I mean, what, what, is, what is God demonstrating here? Yeah, his power, right. Um, if we want to look at some more symbolism, you know, if we turned uh, back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 in particular, uh, Moses, you know, he's coming down from, you know, Mount Sinai, and he's been given the law, right, the law of Moses uh, to teach the people. And do you remember what happened uh, when the law was given to the people of Israel? What physically happened on that mountain? Uh, not that, no. Yeah, so some of the, uh, of course there was the, yeah, so we had some thunderous uh, activity. Uh, verse 18 of Exodus 19 says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently or, or trembled violently. Uh, at, the, at the giving of the law of Moses uh, here at Mount Sinai, uh, there's an earthquake happening, isn't there? Uh, and uh, it's just, again, that symbolism of when the law was established, the law of Moses was established, and now here when the law has been you know, nailed to the cross, has been fulfilled uh, through Jesus, another earthquake uh, takes place. And... Uh, Again, it's just incredible to think about this. And uh, also, uh, verse 54 uh, mentions as well uh, the centurion, right? Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, 
became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. That earthquake is mentioned again as part of the centurion coming to the belief in Jesus. And so just another powerful act, a demonstration of God's power here in this miracle. Let's talk about the third one. This one's my favorite of the four here, but this a veil torn, a divine purpose, this veil uh, we just read this, Matthew 27, verse 51, talks about, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, this is happening uh, at around 3 p.m., at the death of, right after Jesus, is die, Jesus dies. Uh, you know, we know that uh, the faithful Jews who lived there in Jerusalem, they would have came to the temple uh, at three different times of the day, uh, ironically, it would have been around 9 in the morning, at noon, and at 3 p.m. So, you know, we're off-site, right? Uh, you know, Jesus is on the hill of Calvary, but now we, we're finding about, out about this veil taking place uh, here at the temple complex uh, being torn in two. And so there would have been uh, plenty of Jews there at this time offering their uh, evening prayer. Uh, a priest would have been uh, doing his uh, duty of offering incense at this time. And so just imagine this priest. He uh, goes uh, into the holy place. You know, there's that altar of incense there. And, uh, and then there's that veil, right? That, that, that veil that uh, is uh, keeping, um, you know, the, the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. Uh, who is allowed in the most holy place? The high priest, right? And uh, how many times a year was he allowed to go in there? Just once, right? The, the Day of Atonement. And, um, and so separating that place from uh, the holy place where, where the priest was you know, offering the incense was, again, this giant veil. And we... Uh, Again, how, how big was this veil? Uh, you know, um, the instructions on given to the Israelites to build, the, you know, to construct that first veil was for the tabernacle. Uh, Exodus chapter 26, uh, verse 31 through 33, uh, talks about here that. Uh, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Uh, it shall be made with a cherubim, the work of a skillful workman, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver, and you shall hang up the veil under the clasp and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. Right? So uh, even as far back as uh, the tabernacle, they were instructed to have this veil uh, that separated uh, the holy place from the Holy of Holies. Right? And again, that Holy of Holies was you know, the most sacred place to them on earth. Uh, only the high priest could enter there, and he could only do it uh, once a year. You know, obviously, they moved from uh, the tabernacle system to constructing a temple in Solomon's day. And uh, there's 
a couple of verses there that we could reference, but Second uh, Chronicles chapter 3, uh, we'll notice here in verse 14, it just says, uh, He made the veil of violet, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he uh, worked cherubim on it. And so we've got this massive, beautiful veil again uh, for Solomon's temple. Of course, Solomon's temple is going to be destroyed uh, when they go into captivity. Uh, they'll try to rebuild it the best they can when they come back. You know, in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, it'll be destroyed once again uh, during sort of that intertestamental period uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament, and they'll try and rebuild it again. And, of course, that brings us into the New Testament with Jesus uh, alive. And, of course, uh, by that time, it's known as Herod's Temple, but the veil is still there, right? And uh, it's probably... Uh, around the same dimensions as it would have been in the original temple. So um, a good estimate would have been 30 feet by 30 feet. So 30 feet wide, 30 feet high. And it was said to be, uh, this isn't in scripture, but the tradition says it would have been uh, at least four inches thick. All right, so this, this is a pretty heavy uh, veil, right? Um, it's not just a, a bed sheet that's... Uh, that's hanging, right? Because uh, this is uh, keeping one side uh, from going to the other side uh, of the most holy place. And so this was uh, something of beauty, of importance, of a grand stature. And while preparing to burn the incense, you know, thinking of this priest, this earthquake happens, and you hear this great big rip, right? And... Uh, it starts from the top, it goes to the bottom. Now, now, what's significant? Why do you think scripture lets us know that it was ripped from top to bottom? A man didn't do it. A man didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if the earthquake was to um, cause the, the veil to tear... Wouldn't you think that would start from the bottom and work its way up? You know, if the, the ground is coming apart and the veil would be torn, you know, sort of that way. But the veil was torn from top to bottom. And as Miss Helen points out, you know, that's, that's miraculous, right? That's God uh, ripping that veil in half. You know, it's important that uh, they point that out to us there, that, uh, again, from top to bottom. Uh, and now, if you're that priest, and you're offering the incense there, and that gets ripped open, and now you're looking into the Holy of Holies, um, it's quite a shock to you, isn't it? Uh, so, so what does this mean? What's behind this miraculous event? Uh, you know, this is heralding in the end of the Old Covenant, right? Um, Mark chapter, this was sort of interesting, so I just wanted to make this point. Mark chapter 1, verse 10, uh, we're talking about the, the baptism of Jesus. And it says, immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Um, that word opening, he saw the heavens opening, or literally he saw it being parted. Some translations say being ripped open. Right? He saw the heavens being ripped open. 
Well, that same Greek word's being used uh, later on in Mark describing uh, that veil being torn from top to bottom. It's being torn apart, ripped open. Right? And so again, here's that symbolism uh, that we've been seeing in all of these miraculous events. Um, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth to the end of his ministry on earth, uh, that old covenant, right, being uh, taken out of the way. And we know this because uh, the book of Hebrews lets us know this. Um, you know, the, the book of Hebrews is one of those books that, you know, you've got to read it over and over and over again because there's so much Old Testament language, Old Testament uh, symbolism going on here. But if we went to Hebrews chapter 10, and just kind of get the the short uh, uh, answer here in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse uh, 19, we read that, uh, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. All right, so uh, as Christians... Uh, because that veil has been taken away or been split in half, uh, we now have access uh, to God, right? We don't have to go through a priest anymore, like in the Old Testament system, uh, to uh, ask for forgiveness. The priests yeah. rolled back their sins, right? Sorry? They, were, they went to the priest, the priests rolled back their sins. Rolled back? Yeah, they rolled them back. I guess. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, you know the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, right? I mean, you had to. That was something you would have to do daily to to account for the sins that you committed to you know offer that sacrifice. But through Jesus's death, the, you know it's just once for all, right? And so it's just interesting that verse here in verse uh, twenty talks about. How his veil, uh, you know, symbolizes uh, his flesh right, on the cross, and and because that veil has been torn away, now we have access to uh, the the holy place, and uh, we don't need that uh, that priest system anymore to uh, to go to our Father in heaven. Right? We go through Jesus, and. Excuse me, and uh, that's what First Peter chapter two verse nine talks about: that we are a royal priesthood. Right? Christians are a real, royal priesthood. Uh, we we no longer have to um, rely on uh, a priest uh, to have our uh, to uh, start that process of asking for forgiveness. Okay, so I know we're less than five minutes, and we haven't gotten to the fourth um, miracle. So let's just quickly uh, get to that one. But here's the, the dead are raised, and uh, this is a divine promise. Really, you could split this down into maybe two different um, miraculous events happening, the opening of the graves, and then the, the, the raising of the dead. So the, the opening of the graves happened on what day? On what day? Well, the, the graves being opened happened with the earthquake, right? 
So that would have been on Friday. But then they appeared to him on Sunday, right? And uh, because it, it lets us know that uh, it appeared, they appeared after uh, Jesus' resurrection. And so, you know, this is, this is one of those things that um, we, I think we often forget uh, in Scripture, uh, this miraculous event that, that's happening here, uh, that, uh, you know, this isn't just one person being raised from the dead, but we've got multiple, multiple uh, saints, we're told, multiple saints who were, who were raised and they showed themselves uh, around Jerusalem and, and they came to, and people, you know, probably noticed who these uh, people were and I know we talked about this last week about, uh, I think it was Mike who brought this up about, uh, you know, questions we have to ask, you know, when we get to heaven and, you know, these are one of the questions that I would have is, you know, how many were uh, resurrected from the dead during this instance? Uh, were these individuals who had died recently, or uh, were they uh, even older than that? Uh, were they like Lazarus, who uh, had to uh, you know, be resurrected from the dead and have to live out their life um, you know, in fear of people coming after them? And what's even interesting to me is, you know, this is the only mention of this happening. Uh, Matthew lets us know, Mark Luke and John don't record this miracle happening. Uh, it's not mentioned later in, in the scriptures as well. But I think, when I, when I really think about that, I think maybe this was by design, right? That uh, we want to keep our focus on Jesus uh, as far as, uh, you know, Jesus' death on the cross and um, not necessarily uh, this, this event that's happening of all of these uh, saints being, again, resurrected and uh, walking through the holy city, it says in verse 53, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. You know, we see a lot of uh, different uh, individuals who are resurrected from the dead in scripture, uh, especially, you know, you got Elijah raising the widow's son, Elisha raising the Shumanite woman's son. Uh, you know, we've seen in Jesus' ministry where he raises uh, Jairus' daughter, uh, the, the widow of Nain, uh, the raising of Lazarus, and then even uh, Peter and Paul each ra- raised somebody from the dead. But this event here, again, multiple, multiple people uh, being raised from the dead. And again, the scriptures don't uh, talk about this anymore after uh, that it's mentioned here in Matthew. And you know, that's very intriguing, but you know Why? You know, again, what might, what might be the purpose of this uh, miracle uh, happening here? Again, maybe it's, maybe it's more evidence uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Maybe this is a glimpse to, uh, you know, the resurrection that's going to take place, right? Uh, but again, this, this was a public thing, you know, and so... Uh, as much as I really want to know, uh, you know, how the people reacted in Jerusalem to this, unfortunately the scriptures don't let us know that, do they? But uh, it must have been a scene, right, that uh, maybe someone who you had lost recently just, you know, all of a sudden he's, he's been resurrected and he shows up and, uh, you know, again, we just don't know all of the aspects to that. Um, 
Next Wednesday, we will uh, look at the burial of Jesus as we continue on. But I appreciate everyone's comments again tonight, and I look forward to our next lesson.